Looking for a way to make quick cash? Making cash with DoorDash is super easy, guys. I love driving around my town, and now I can do that and get paid. Not to mention the sign-up process was so easy. Download the DoorDash driver app today to get started. Excited for a road trip? Start it off right with auto coverage from American Family Insurance. J.D. Power ranked us number one in customer satisfaction with the auto insurance shopping experience among mid-size insurers. Get a quote at AmFam.com. American Family Insurance. For J.D. Power 2021 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Well, this morning we're going to continue on our series. We've been preaching on the kingdom of God. Last week I said, at least on the online uh, service, the, the video we recorded for online, I said that was going to be the last message on the gospel of the kingdom. But evidently the Holy Spirit had another uh, opinion on that. So I really felt like the Holy Spirit said, you are really needing to unpack. You know, you need to really just kind of double click on what you, you touched on last week. Because there's some specific things I believe that God wants to teach us in this season in which we live. You know, the Bible is very clear that we are in a war. We are in a war zone. And there's a place for us to learn how to engage the enemy in order to overcome. And so we're going to look at that topic this morning. And as I said, you know, you look around, you look at the media, we see our world is in chaos the nations are in upheaval. Our headlines speak about the coronavirus, protests, social unrest, political instability, economic devastation. And the censorship now that's on media is crazy. It's absolutely crazy. There is an agenda definitely to promote a particular ideology that is out there. And that ideology does not represent Christian values. And I want you to understand, make no mistake about it, that something sinister is working behind the scenes. There is a diabolical scheme. How many know, especially those of you who speak Spanish, what diabolical means? Diablos, right? Demonic. It's of the devil. The idea is something demonic is happening. Something is going on behind the scenes. There is a narrative that's being pushed by unseen rulers. The Bible says in Ephesians 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what the Bible says. There is a narrative being pushed by hell itself. The enemy has a plan. He has a strategy. He's diabolical. He's strategic. He's intentional. And he's aggressive. And he's not going to relent or back down until he has his way. I said a few weeks ago that we are to pray that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. But do you understand? Satan has the same agenda. It is his will that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in hell, as it is in the unseen realms where darkness lives and pervades. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, can anything be done to stop this evil scheme that the enemy is pushing? Or are we just going to kind of hang on, hold out, 
you know, hopefully we're going to get through this thing and Jesus is going to come back and we're going to go to be with him. And then we know the book of Revelation talks about the judgments of God being poured out on the earth for those who reject Jesus Christ. Is that where we're headed? Is that what's going to happen? Well, ultimately, yes. Ultimately, yes. But we have to realize something, that the Bible is clear that we, as God's people, have a responsibility. So can the nations be saved? Can we see a time of a reprieve? Can we see the, the tide of darkness, so to speak, turn back and God's kingdom come in power and glory on the earth? Well, I believe the Lord does have a plan to stop the spirituals of rulers of darkness in their tracks and from advancing on the earth. That plan is actually a people. That plan is his ecclesia. His ecclesia is the Greek word that is often translated church. Interestingly, ecclesia is a word that, for the most part, does not at all in the original Greek language equate with our modern word church. We're going to look at that this morning in a deep way. But I want you to understand that Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20 is where we're going to go, and it records the account of Jesus and his disciples, their interaction in a place called Caesarea Philippi, which today is modern Banias or Banias, Caesarea Philippi was an ancient Roman city that was located at the southwestern base of Mount Hermon, which was the largest mountain in Israel. It's the largest mountain in Israel. And it's actually the, the source of the, of the waters of the River Jordan. So here is Jesus with his disciples standing at this place. And the Bible says that Jesus actually asks them a question. The question is, about his identity. Who, who do people say that I am? I, the son of man. Who, who do people say I am? What, what, are they, what are they saying? See, it's interesting because at this place called Caesarea Philippi, it was a, a place, a location that, that devout Jews would never go there. They would never travel there because its origins were clearly evil, demonic. In fact, it was the place where the Greeks worshipped the goat god Pan. You ever seen the pictures of the upper body is, is a human torso and the, the legs are a goat? That's Pan in Greek mythology. And the place used to be called Panias. And this is where the Greeks worshipped this god for a long time. And so in the days of Jesus, it is still rampant with idolatry. It had been taken over by the Greeks and now by the Romans. And so it isn't a place that devout Jews would go. In fact, when you study the scripture, when you study the text, you see very clearly that Jesus went out of his way to go to this place. He literally went off the beaten path. He had to exit from the highway, so to speak, drive inland, go where to be able to get there. So it's very important. It's very strategic. Why would Jesus do this? Well, there are at least several reasons that we're going to look at 
First of all, as I said, people, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? You know, who do they say that the Son of Man is? And they answered him, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and some Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus looks at them, he says, okay, but who do you yourselves say that I am? The Greek is plural. Who do you yourselves say that I am? Peter pipes up. Peter is a spokesman for the, the group, so to speak. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You received a revelation of this, Jesus. Uh, Peter, this didn't come, you know, because someone else told you you were convinced. It's not because your parents taught you this. It's not because you learned this in Sunday school. It's not because you went through a 12-week discipleship class and, and you learned all the fundamentals of your faith. But something spiritual has transpired. There's been a transaction in the spiritual realm where your faith has interacted with revelation. And revelation has disclosed to you who I really am. Revelation has caused you to know me as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Why is this so important that Peter had, and presumably the other disciples, this revelation is Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God at this place called Caesarea Philippi? Because Caesarea Philippi, during Jesus' day, was also the location where Caesar, the Roman emperor, was venerated as divine. If you were to go to the Acropolis, the highest point of this mountain where Caesarea Philippi is located, you will see that there were actually shrines dedicated to uh, Caesar, calling him the divine one. In fact, Augustus was, his very name was changed, meaning that he's divine, from Octavius to Augustus. He's divine. Caesar was considered son of God. Caesar was also referred to as king of kings and lord of lords. There is a place in that culture, obviously idolatry was rampant, but specifically for the worship of Caesar. So Jesus knows it's critical that his disciples settle once and for all the truth of his identity. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a great religious teacher. He's not one of many, even who would come after him. But here, clearly, Jesus lays claim to the fact that he is God, that he is deity, that he is not just a man or, or a teacher or anything else. He's God. And so he wants his disciples to know the truth of his identity. Philippians 2, 9 and 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on the earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. There is no one else greater. We need to know him for who he is, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the ultimate ruler, the one that is above everyone else, the one to whom every leader and every person in history will ultimately bow their knee and confess with their mouth that he is the most high, that he is Lord of all. It's been interesting in the past couple of years among uh, the, the younger generation in particular, there's been several well-known um, pastors, um, Christian musicians that have come out and denounced their faith. I don't believe in God anymore. In March of this year, John Steingard, who's the band Hawk Nelson, originally from Peterborough, Ontario. John Steingard is the lead singer. And he posted on, on uh, Instagram on March 20th a letter. And he said, I no longer believe in God. I checked out his Instagram account this morning. He's on a mission to get everyone else to stop believing in God as well. It's not enough that he doesn't believe in God. He's got a mission to make sure that he influences those that he's been in contact with to no longer believe in God or in the Bible. One of his posts said, what if the Bible actually is not God's word speaking to humankind, his will? But what if the Bible is actually the opposite? That's what his post said. Meaning what? That it's a human book that is misrepresenting truth. Last year, August 2019, Marty Sampson, one of the most prominent worship leaders at Hillsong, came out publicly again on Instagram and said, I don't believe in God. He's written some of the most sung, well-sung, and, and worship songs in the planet, and he walked away, I don't believe in God. Also, last year, former youth pastor, young adult pastor, Joshua Harris, He's the one who wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. He literally uh, influenced the purity culture among millennials, like maybe perhaps like some, no one else. Evidently, he wanted to kiss God goodbye and the Christian faith goodbye because he announced, I no longer believe in God or the Bible. And he actually lives here in Vancouver now. He's an advocate for many things but no longer does he believe in God. When you look at this, you know, we have to ask ourselves, so, so what's up with this? What's going on? What has happened that these pastors, these, these Christian musicians, this worship leader would come out and just say, hey, God isn't real. I've been playing games for a long time. I've been fake for such a long time. I no longer believe in God, and I haven't really, to be honest, for a long time. What's going on here? Listen to me. Daniel 11.32 says, the people who know their God shall be strong, and they will do or carry out great exploits. Listen, I want you to please understand something here. 
when the Bible talks about being strong in our faith, when the Bible talks about doing things that are significant on the earth, an impact, leaving a footprint, so to speak, for the kingdom of God, the first thing we have to understand is it's those who know their God. Those who know their God. In both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the meaning of the word know is, is so much deeper than just having mental assent. It has to do with having an experience. In fact, the same Hebrew and Greek word, both of those words, can be used to express the most intimate type of relationship between a man and a woman. The idea is this isn't just knowing about God. This isn't just understanding doctrine or Bible verses, but this means to know God experientially and personally. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus said when he was praying to his Father, he said, I pray that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I pray that they might know you, that they might have an encounter with you, that they might experience you personally, powerfully. And we today owe our generation an encounter with God. We owe our generation an encounter with God. It's not enough that we raise people in a church where there's a form of godliness but there's no power or we teach them the scriptures even though all of this is important. We owe our generation an encounter with God. We owe our kids an encounter with God. Our grandchildren an encounter with God. They need to know God. They need to experience revival fire. They need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They need to have visions and dreams and visitations and encounters with God. They need to experience His presence. They need to know His power. They need to see miracles, signs, and wonders in this generation. Which is normal New Testament Christianity, by the way. Normal. Those who know their God will be strong. Only those who know. So we can, it's not an explanation. An explanation is not enough. Sometimes you need a revelation and a demonstration even. What do I mean by that? I have been so many places where I've had the privilege to share the gospel. And I've seen people of other faiths, people who have no faith, Somehow they were invited in. Obviously, the Lord was working. They came in, and they had a supernatural encounter with God that changed their lives. I remember being in Montreal, and Sunday morning at a church that I was invited to go and speak in, I remember being there, and, and, and at the end, I prayed for people, if you need a healing, if you need a miracle, and I, the Lord was giving words of knowledge, and I remember... This young lady came forward, and I looked at her, and the Holy Spirit said, she's from Iran. I spoke to her. I said, are you from Iran? And she said, yes, I am. How did you know that? And I said, because the Holy Spirit just told me. The Holy Spirit is God. She's an Allah, whatever you want to call him. By the way, don't get hung up on the name Allah, Christians. In Indonesia, in the Bahasa language, my sister knows this. 
The name is Allah in the Holy Bible, in Bahasa. So don't get all hung up on that. The truth is, it's not the name we use because we don't use the name that he gave Moses. The truth is, it's who he is and our relationship with him. Whether some people have, have called him their God or whatever, you know, that's the same in, in other cultures as well. But here we are. We're there. I'm ministering to her, and I prayed for her, and the power of God came upon her. She began to weep. She began to cry, and God healed her, and she ended up giving her life to, to Jesus. And she said, she said, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is alive. Jesus is real. Not because of a theological dis debate that we had convincing her. Here's seven reasons why Muhammad was a false prophet. That's not what it what did. It was she had an encounter with the true and living God. She had an encounter with the true and living God. I remember praying for someone another time who was a Satanist. And as I began to pray for that person, the Holy Spirit came upon that person. They began to weep. They began to cry. They were delivered powerfully, and they cried out, Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. Jesus is God. When I was in Bali, Indonesia, just over a year ago, I was ministering in a community largely Hindu. Some Muslims, some Buddhists, obviously some Christians. One night as... As I was ministering, we, after, we gave people an invitation to counter the power of God. The power of God was already there. People knew it. They could feel it. It was so tangible. This one young lady came forward. Many people came forward. Blind eyes were open. People that couldn't see had their, had their sight restored. Deaf ears were open. People began to encounter God in such a powerful way. But this one young lady, she was touched by the power of the Holy Spirit. She fell down. She was shaking on the ground. And she got up and she was completely healed of, of different uh, conditions. And what ended up happening is she acknowledged that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus is the way of salvation. And she was a Buddhist. You see, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. There's going to be something that happens when people encounter God and they know Him. They don't just know about Him. It's not theology. It's not a doctrine. It's not giving mental assent to something, but it's an actual encounter with the living God. This is what our generation desperately needs today. And I really believe that God is in the business of manifesting himself. I've seen it so many times. When you read the Bible, if you read the Bible with your preconceived kind of perspective, your paradigm, you're not going to see God working. But when you approach it and you say, how, do, how will I see God revealing himself to people that weren't seeking him? Come on now. I said, well, God, God doesn't reveal himself to people that are not seeking him. Really? Well, guess what? In Romans 3, quoting from the Old Testament, it says, no one seeks after God. <laughs> the idea of man seeking after God said C.S. Lewis, is as absurd as a mouse seeking after a cat. In Romans 10, Paul said, 
I believe it's verse 20. I revealed myself to those who were not seeking me. I revealed myself to those who were not seeking me. But all day long, I stretched out my hands to Israel. But Israel rejected me. The religious people rejected him. But those who didn't know him, those who weren't seeking him, he said, I revealed myself to those who weren't seeking me. Jesus went to the prostitutes, to the tax collectors, to others that had no sense of piety or commitment. Obviously, their lifestyles were far from being righteous. And he revealed himself. He revealed his father to him. In fact, the primary mission of Jesus when he was on the earth was to reveal his father to his generation. To reveal him as, listen to this, father to a fatherless generation. The primary purpose of his mission was to reveal him. Not to give them more laws, not to give them more teachings, but to reveal his father. I've come that you might know my Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he, his Son, whom he sent. In fact, verse 3 of John 17 says, this is eternal life. This is eternal life. That they might know you, Father. They might know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. That's why he came. I've come that you might have life life more abundantly. I come that you might know the source of life. Know, experience. Every time you read that word know, understand it means experience, not just some sort of, you know, mental thing. It's not academic, but it's spiritual. So there is a need for revelation. Not just for those who don't, go, who, who, know, who don't attend our churches, but for every one of us. You see, Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the most high God. And just a, a little while after that, Jesus began to announce that he would go to the cross and he would die. In fact, scholars believe that this account in Caesarea Philippi happened about six months before his death. So Jesus is preparing the disciples for his death. They're going to take over. They're going to take charge. And so what ends up happening is when he announces that he will die, Peter looks at him and says, no way, Jesus, God forbid that you will die. And the very Jesus, the very Peter who had just had a revelation of him as the Christ, the Son of God, the same Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan, at the same place. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God. You're mindful. Ohio needs nurses now. Xavier University is offsetting the demand by offering individuals with non-nursing bachelor's degrees an accelerated path to the profession. With locations in Cincinnati, Cleveland, and Columbus, our ABSN program enables adult learners like you to earn a respected Bachelor of Science in Nursing in 16 months. 
So what are you waiting for? There's no better time than now to step up and become a nurse. Search Xavier, ABSN to apply. ...of the things of man. The one who just was commended, Simon, Barjona, flesh and blood, has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, just a little bit later, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking like a man. <laughs> that is crazy. What does that say about us as a human, as, as humans? Wow. We can be tuned in and then we can be tuned out. It is so easy for us to be tuned in one moment and then we tune out in the next moment. So we need to have an understanding that the purpose for Jesus' mission was to build his church on what? This rock, he said, so that the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. He is bringing them to Caesarea Philippi to reveal his purpose for coming into the world, which was also their mission. Verse 18, I say, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Caesarea Philippi was known for its dark cavern system that was believed to be the great abyss, the doorway to the underworld, or in other words, it was called the gate to Hades. There it is. That's the actual photo. That's the gate to Hades. So Jesus, many scholars are believing, is actually standing at the mouth of that cave, which was known as the gate of Hades, when he says to his disciples, who do men say that I am? When I, Lynn and I went to Israel, our, our guide took us to that very place, and I'm sure many of you have been there. And what ends up happening is you are told this is the place where Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? So Jesus said, listen, you are Peter, verse 18, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I've come to destroy the works of darkness and plunder the gates of Hades, and it's my church that I'm going to use to effect and execute my will, my ecclesia, to advance my kingdom on the earth. And you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church, Ecclesia, and the gates of Hades, which are the powers of the infernal region, shall not overpower it or be strong to its detriment or hold out against it. So the question is, what is the rock upon which the church would be built? Let me, let me submit something to you today. There are many different views on this. Of course, the Catholic Church believes that this was when Peter was nominated and chosen by God to be the first pope. And then sometimes we say, well, that doesn't refer to Peter at all because, you know, he says Petras, and, and the other word is Petra. And, and I get that, but I want you to understand something, even though there's an argument against that. I want you to understand something. What is happening here definitely was something that Peter was experiencing. There was something significant. The brilliant construction of Jesus' language in this passage actually allows multiple claims to be true at one time. In other words, each one with its own scale of priority and importance. Peter was a small part of the rock, right? You're a chip off the old block. 
Jesus is the ultimate realization of that rock. But yet, we're still not finished extracting all possible meanings. As the frame around this stunning masterpiece expands, we stagger back just enough to realize that it's actually the ongoing process of revelation that forms the foundation of God's work in the earth. What do I mean by that? Jesus said, I will build my church, my ecclesia, not on Peter, not on the traditions or the authority of men, but on the foundation and revelation of Christ that Peter himself experienced and even the apostles did to a certain degree. So to just say, well, nothing to do with Peter. No, Peter experienced revelation. And God is saying, anyone who comes to me, anyone who has a heart who is open to me, anyone to whom I reveal myself, I can use them to build my church so that the gates of Hades will not prevail. See, each person, each person, every one of us in each generation must have an experience, must have a fresh revelation of his glory in our lives. Otherwise, the heart of the gospel will grow stale and the kingdom of God will not advance. Why do people who seemingly knew God, worshiped God, wrote songs about God, preached about God, turn around and walk away from God and say he doesn't even exist. The Bible is not true. It's not the word of God. I do no longer believe. How does that happen? Because somewhere, whether they ever had a relationship with him, I don't know. Ultimately, God will will judge that. But somewhere down the line, it became stale. It became cold. They stopped receiving revelation. I believe that with all my heart because I know when we experience a fresh ongoing revelation and, and we understand who his glory and his kingship, that it has such an impact upon us when we know who he is. You see, I think about the book of Revelation. The, we call it the, the apocalypse, the apocalypsis. Apocalypsis means very simply this, to remove the veil, to, pull, to, to you know, pull back the curtain so you see things plainly. And by the way, it's the revelation of Jesus. Not the revelation of the Antichrist, the revelation of Christ. The book of Revelation is about Jesus. It's about giving every generation a fresh encounter with who he is so that he is known, he is revealed. If we are, you know what? If we are not continually enlarged in our understanding of who he is and encountering him in his glory, guys, it's not long before we start living off of Last week's blessing, last month's blessing. Well, I remember in the good old days, come on, when God still moved, and I don't know what's going on, but evidently God's not been up to much in the past 25 years. Come on, I'm being sarcastic. But with many people, 
That's the way it is. When did you experience God last? When did you have an encounter with God last? I was baptized with the Holy Ghost in 1962, but I haven't encountered him since. Come on, why? Is he on vacation? Has he forgotten about you? Someone said, if we're not as close to God as we once were, who moved? Who moved? You see, God wants us to encounter him. The Bible says in Lamentations, morning by morning, new mercies. There's new mercies. You can have a revelation. You can have an encounter with God. You can experience him every day. Every day you can experience him. You can walk in that place of revelation, of knowing who he is. But it requires a commitment to worship, to seeking him in the word, to praying. And all of this, when we do it from a pure heart and our intention is to really know him, will produce fresh seasons of renewal where our spirit sees him and says all over again, aha, you are the Christ. I see him. I see him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The, the idea is it's, it's continuous, not just a one-time thing. It's continuous. As your heart is pure, you're going to encounter him. You're going to see him. You're going to know him for who he is. We can hear his voice. We can know who he is. You see, Jesus... The Bible says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 3 is the foundation of the church. But in Ephesians 2, verse 20, we're told that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, let me give you a, a quick uh, lesson here. In, in First of all, today we will often quote that verse as well as 1 Corinthians 12, 28 that says God has sent in the church first of all apostles, secondly prophets, thirdly teachers. We'll look at that and we'll say, well, that refers to modern day apostles and prophets. No, it doesn't. It does not refer to modern day apostles and prophets. What it's referring to is the church is built on the foundation of what? Apostles and prophets. Ultimately, what is it? Who received revelation in the Old Testament? We refer to them as, as prophets. Who received revelation in the New Testament? Apostles. Now, it doesn't stop with the scriptures. Now, what am I saying? I'm not saying there's more books being written. I'm not telling you guys, go out and read the Book of Mormon. Hello. Okay. <laughs> what I'm saying is God is still speaking. And he said, does it contradict the scriptures? No, it doesn't contradict the scriptures. But what I am saying is what Jesus said, which is Matthew 4, verse 4. Jesus said this. He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the word proceeds is not past tense, it's present tense. It means it expresses continuous or repeated action. God is telling us we live by his present and continuous word coming forth from him. 
the original language, the, the definition of this type of word is, is rema. We, we say in English rema, which means that which is or has been uttered by the living voice. That which is or has been uttered by the living voice. God is speaking through his living voice. Yes, he uses the scriptures, but yes, he speaks to us. He still communicates to us in so many different ways. He's still speaking to us, revealing himself to us today. And it does not contradict the scriptures. It doesn't add to or take away. It's a clear message in which God speaks to us as a living voice. We live by every rhema word that comes from the mouth of God. This requires us to be in a relationship with him. See, you can pick up the Bible and you can read it and it can be stale and stagnant because you don't have a relationship with the author. You don't know who he is. We do not recognize the voice of strangers. We only recognize the voice of those with whom we're acquainted. If you want to hear God's voice, you need to know him. You need to have a relationship with him. You see, you need to follow him. You need to be obedient. You need to do what he has called you to do, what he's called me to do. Listen, he said, I'm going to build my church on this foundation of hearing my voice of knowing what I'm saying. I'm going to build my church, my ecclesia, on this foundation of revelation, fresh word, encountering, hearing from me, hearing from heaven. As I said, ecclesia is the, is, is the Greek word that is typically in, in most modern English translations rendered church. But ecclesia means something much more than church. In fact, in Spanish, iglesia is close. So iglesia means what, assembly, gathering, something like that? So the idea is, in, in, in Portuguese, igreja, the idea is ecclesia has to do with being a people that come together, that gather together. In fact, William Tyndale, who was the first person to translate the Bible directly from the English languages into, uh, I'm sorry, from the original languages into English, he did not use the word church when he translated ecclesia. He used the word assembly. The Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the word ecclesia when referring to God's people assembling together in covenant to hear the voice of the Lord. Sorry for getting a little technical. Let me get into the practical. Deuteronomy 4, verse 10. The Lord says this, and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, ecclesia is used. Gather the people to me. God says, gather them, my ecclesia, and I will let them hear my words. I want my people to hear my words. Listen to this. That they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. This is an amazing picture of what the ecclesia is. This is a picture where God says, gather my people so they can hear my voice, 
So it will result in them fearing me all the days of their lives on the earth, and I want them to also teach their children. I want them to teach their children the things that I spoke to them. The things that they heard on that mountain, referring to the time when God appeared to him, which would have been literally the day of what we call the day of Pentecost now. We, we talk about the day of Pentecost as the time when the Holy Spirit came into the world. But for the Jews, the day of Pentecost was not only when God gave them the law, but it was the first time God spoke to his people at large. Woohoo! That is so good. Pentecost is about God speaking to his people. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, what? Young men, there'll be dreams, there'll be visions. You'll, young men will prophesy, old men will dream dreams. All of these things, you're, you, you will encounter me in that way. So in God's kingdom, the ecclesia is the called out people who gather to hear from heaven, to legislate kingdom law, and to decree and demonstrate it on the earth. That's what the ecclesia is in the New Testament. In fact, the idea, you can look at Acts 19, I won't get into it, but the word ecclesia is translated assembly there, and it's actually used as a duly convened assembly of citizens called to convene together for the purpose of rendering judgments and voting on political matters. That's what it was known as among the Greeks and the Romans. The ecclesia was a legal body that gathered together and they would vote on matters and then they would begin to implement laws and there would be a decree that was made. So the idea here is that we are to hear from God as the ecclesia. We are to understand what he's speaking. It's to have an impact upon us that we take it in and we fear him, which the Bible says, if you fear the Lord, you will obey him. And the idea here is that then what ends up taking place is we can teach others because we have personally received a revelation of who he is. And the scripture says that we were given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, that whatever we bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever we loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. To bind and loose means to forbid by an indisputable authority or to permit by an indisputable authority. So we've been given keys. Keys grant access. Keys lock. Keys open. But ultimately, we've been given keys. The Amplified Bible says... Whatever you forbid and declare to be improper and unlawful on earth must be what is already forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit and declare proper and lawful on earth must be what is already permitted in heaven. So listen to this. We forbid on the earth what God has forbidden in heaven. We permit on the earth what God has permitted in heaven. So how do we know what God has forbidden in heaven? How do we know what God has permitted in heaven? Revelation, we need to know. And revelation comes from the scriptures, but there's sometimes when the scripture just doesn't tell us. Like, if you're saying, God, I, I need to know, should I move here? Should I go there? You know, there isn't necessarily a verse and a chapter for that. You need to hear from God. And so what is God saying about the situation? What is God declaring? God is saying, I want to give you access to that which is inaccessible by natural means. There are things that seem like these are fortified walls. This thing's locked. How do I get access to this? Jeremiah 33 verse 3 tells us, the Lord says, ask of me and I will show you great and mighty things. 
Ask of me and I will show you great and mighty things. The word translated mighty is actually a word that could be better rendered inaccessible. The same Hebrew word is used to speak of fortified cities or walls several times in the book of Isaiah. I want to give you access to things that are inaccessible. I want you to begin to understand that there are things that I want you to know. I will give you revelational insight, which are essential, which is essential for victorious spiritual warfare so that the gates of Hades can be locked and opened. The idea is that when we hear from heaven, we know what God's saying to us. What does that mean? Listen, let me give you an example of this. We're to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 1 Kings 18, there's an example of how one man used the keys of the kingdom to lock the gates of Hades and stop the advancement of the powers of darkness on the earth. Think about that. One man used the keys of the kingdom in his day, and he locked the gates of Hades, and he stopped the advancement of the kingdom of darkness. Who is that? Elijah. Elijah has an encounter with God. 1 Kings 18.1, it came to pass after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go present yourself to Ahab, I will send rain on the earth. So after three and a half years of famine and drought, go present yourself to Ahab, I'm going to send rain. So he hears from heaven. Verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of an abundance of rain. There was no rain yet. It wasn't raining. It wasn't like he could hear, you know, the storm clouds approaching from the distance. That's not at all what it means. What he's saying is that he heard it in the spirit. In fact, the Hebrew word translated sound actually means voice. There's a voice. There's a voice. What does it mean? Elijah had to pray. He had to decree what God said so that it would be demonstrated on the earth. Okay. Lots of theology this morning. I get it. Hopefully you don't think it's boring, but here's where we're going to go. Now is the practical part. How does this apply to us? Let me put it this way. What has God said? No trespassing, but you've allowed the enemy to encroach on the very temple of God. What has the Lord said? This is my will for you, my son, my daughter, but you are not experiencing it. What is it? That God has said, I permit, but we maybe, even inadvertently, ignorantly, are permitting, are forbidding what he's permitted. Are we permitting what God has forbid in our lives? Is there something in your life, you know God says, no access, access denied, but you have granted access to that in your life. Conversely, he has said, this is my will. But the enemy has locked the gates. The enemy is saying, you're not going past here. The gates of Hades will not prevail. Gates are not offensive. Gates are to be assailed. Gates are to be attacked. And what is he saying? He's saying, there's things that I want you to advance on, and I want you to move forward, and I want you to take this. But the enemies set up a gate. 
saying, no, you're not coming in. He's trying to block it. You have keys. You have keys. You have authority. You have access to revelation to understand what God is saying. So Elijah prays. He prays seven times, and we know what ends up happening as he prays. He said, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea, and then the rain comes. The rain comes. Why? Everybody said, look, it's impossible. There's been a drought for three and a half years. It's impossible. Elijah had a word. He had a word from God. That's all he needed was revelation from heaven. He heard the voice of God. He had a word from God, but that wasn't enough. He had to contend for that word to come to pass. He had to contend in prayer. He had to contend in obedience for that word to come to pass. Ezekiel 36, 37, God had shared his amazing promises with Israel, and then he said this. He said this. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord God, I will allow the house of Israel to inquire of me to do it for them. In other words, okay, I've revealed my heart. This is what I want to do. This is my plan for you, Israel. Now I'm going to allow you to inquire. I'm going to allow you to ask. Inquire. You have not because you ask not. Guys, passivity has prevented what God wants to do in many places. I hear Christians say today, we're praying and waiting for revival. Show me where that is in the New Testament. We're praying and waiting for revival. Stop waiting for revival. Start releasing the kingdom. He didn't tell us to pray and wait for revival because Jesus gave us a commission to go out onto the earth to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to preach the kingdom, to release revival, in other words. I've been revived. I am revived. I'm not saying there isn't a place for greater intimacy. There isn't a place to know more power. But I'm not waiting for revival. We're waiting for God, and God's saying, what are you waiting for? I'm waiting for you. In Luke 24, 49, wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. But from that point on, we no longer wait. When you receive the Holy Spirit, you no longer wait. You go out. You advance the kingdom. Everywhere you go, you have been given keys. You've been given keys to be able to forbid what God forbids, to be able to deny what, and what he denies, to be able to give access to what he wants to give access to your life, to, to the lives of your family, to the lives of others. You have been given these keys. I have been given these keys.